Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 29 on March 24th, 2020. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a different area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. In this episode, I focus on COVID-19 and what a number of programs are doing during this very challenging pandemic. My purpose is for programs to learn from each other. I reached out to 15 programs and was able to obtain interviews with five of them on Monday, March 23, 2020. This was due to many individuals being in the thick of the epidemic and not being able to take the time when they needed to be focused at their programs. I certainly understand and all the more appreciate those that did have 15 to 20 minutes to share with me what their programs are doing. I also interviewed an infectious disease specialist to provide some background on COVID-19. Those interviewed include Tom Allenstein, President and CEO of MedFlight of Ohio, Jim Hauser, Senior Director of Medical Operations, and Dr. Frank Guyette, Medical Director, both are with Stat Medivac, Dr. Timothy Burke, Retired Infectious Disease Specialist, Jeff Ritchie, Interim Executive Director at Airlift Northwest, Colby Colbert, Vice President of Clinical Operations, LifeLink 3, and Tom Judge, CEO of Life Flight of Maine. I first talked to Tom Allenstein, President and CEO, MedFlight of Ohio. Well, thanks uh, for taking the time, Tom. I know uh, you guys are uh, very busy with things. I can only imagine. Have uh, you transported any known COVID-19 cases as yet? Yeah, we've transported uh, a few already, both uh, in critical care mode uh, with our MICU teams as well as uh, our ground ALS, VLS service have transported some. Um, some have actually been pretty sick, necessitating ventilator management mm-hmm. and one went on ECMO. So we've, we've seen a, a few pretty sick patients already. How many uh, who were not symptomatic then were found to be after the transport? Have you heard that from the hospitals yet? Yeah, I mean, uh, the challenge has been with all of this is the timelines for getting test results back. So, you know, we're transporting uh, what we could call PUIs, people or persons under investigation. And so we're treating them as if they are positive, and, and we don't even find out uh, for several days afterwards whether or not they were. Right. So, you know, we're just treating them uh, as such just based off of their symptoms. Got you. Have any of your staff been exposed or have the virus currently? 
Um, I believe that we have a couple that we have furloughed because they are showing uh, fevers or other symptoms and have been around uh, people who potentially also have it. But the, again, the difficulty is trying to get the test results back. Um, I do have a couple that have uh, had positive um, uh, COVID-19 uh, test results. Uh, both of those people um, really uh, related to it being a severe cold is what they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, everybody else um, that has been exposed to it, luckily uh, in our patient transport mode, they were all under full PPE and, and followed the process. So we did not have to furlough them at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, what precautions are you taking? You mentioned PPE. Are, are you providing extra training? What specific equipment or supplies are you using? So everybody uh, that works both on our ground ambulance, ALS, uh, BLS ambulance, as well as our critical care teams have all been fit tested. So if they have a known patient that they are going to, or any patient that they are going to be uh, involved in doing an intubation or something where there may be potentially aerosolized uh, droplets, um, we are asking them to be in the full PPE with the mask, gowns, um, uh, goggles, all of that stuff. Other patients, uh, we are asking them to wear non-fitted N95s or mm-hmm. uh, surgical masks or anything else just to protect themselves from uh, those patients that are, you know, questionable. Um, definitely not uh, just your average patient by any means, but um, the ones that are questionable, they're, they're starting to wear some of those um, uh, types of devices. But uh, normal routine transports of a STEMI and all of that, um, you know, we're just following universal precautions. Yes. Has um, decontamination been an issue either in the uh, helicopter or in the ground transport? So we're not flying any of these patients. Um, Okay. uh, We are uh, operating out of an EC-130 full open cabin and and you know my feeling on a lot of that is that they probably don't need the speed that the helicopter provides they may need Mm -hmm. critical care so we're going by ground and then once the uh, uh, um, transport has been completed then we have a very set uh, aside standard process for decontaminating the the vehicle including wiping down all services and um, i have an infection control person on staff here that has just been marvelous during all of this. She's been a great asset working with the crews, but then also helping us to set up uh, our protocols for how to clean and uh, everything after the transport. So um, I think we have it down pretty good because of what she has uh, set us up for. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've heard that from other programs too on the air versus ground uh, piece of it. I think the thing that's hard is if you don't know if the patient's been exposed, you know, and they're coming in for something else, you know, whether right. they could be uh, exposing. Well, and and my feeling is that, you know, we have those patients out there today. We have TB patients. We have people yes. with flu A, flu B, um, measles. Uh, we've had a, a number of other uh, uh, things that we should have been um, paying attention to. 
and yet we, you know, uh, probably were a little complacent in how we dealt with all of those. And so, uh, considering the the COVID nineteen patients, however, you know, we're just looking at um, most of the patients that we've been exposed to, uh, no pun intended, but the ones that we are transporting and all of that, they don't need the speed of the helicopter as much as they might need the critical care. And then when you start looking at by the time if they truly are uh, positive, you're gowning up, you're masking up, you're doing all of your precautions and then taking the aircraft out of service afterwards, you know, the timelines for all of that is is probably not conducive. The other other thing that is uh, dynamic that's going on, at least here in central Ohio, is that all the receiving hospitals have set up a process that they are accepting these patients. Well, you know, 98% of these patients are coming by ground, so they have that process well mapped out. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you throw in the patient coming in by air on a rooftop helipad, and you've totally, um, you know, just thrown their whole planning into a shambles because now they've got to have a secondary plan for what we're going to do coming down from the helipad. Yes. All of that. So I think it's really worked out uh, beneficial to have a unified plan um, utilizing the ground uh, with our teams. Uh, All of our helicopter teams can quickly switch over to a ground mode um, if they learn and and find out that these patients are positive or suspected of of being COVID patients, then we're going to quickly transition them into a ground mode and, and the patient that way and there's really very little time difference by the time they get going how how many med uh, care ambulances do you have now uh, we have about 60 um, MedCare ambulances on a, on a peak time um, running throughout central Ohio and in, into southern Ohio and a little bit of into north central uh, yeah, Ohio. Yeah. So, so you have that capability to do that. We have but, that capability. Yeah, yep. Not all the programs in the country have that from an air medical perspective. Right. Let me just go on right. some other questions here. Are, are you having trouble obtaining supplies? So as you can imagine, uh, supplies for PPE especially are, are in uh, tight quantities. Yes. Uh, we do have a number of uh, our fitted N95 masks um, that we've distributed out to the bases to, to be using in specific cases, uh, such as intubation or if a patient's on a ventilator or um, uh, BiPAP or something like that, we want them to use the fitted mass. Otherwise, we have surgical masks and all of that for the other patients um, that uh, may not be uh, uh, quite that, you know, uh, sensitive with uh, being uh, aerosolized uh, droplets and all of that. So we do have um, some of those supplies, but it, they are in tight quantities. We've mm-hmm. had to reach out to the state. We've reached out to our owner hospitals um, to try and get some additional supplies. The other things that we're uh, really struggling with is cleaning supplies. And I am just uh, so pleased with the response from public uh, as a number of the schools have pretty much closed down here. Um, and they gave us a bunch of their cleaning supplies. Oh, wonderful. Uh, in some of the locations and, um, you know, just rubber gloves and, and all of that. So it's it's been really pleasant to see the, the uh, reaching out from the uh, public on these. Hey, have you had to do some extra things with your crew quarters, even sanitizing and... 
taking extra precautions. Uh, we just pretty much, yeah, I mean, we pretty much ask every shift. So every shift that they come in, they do a, a good wipe down of all the surfaces, including things like the door handles and mm-hmm. and cupboard knobs and, and all of that that you don't think of. Um, but everybody is touching, and so that's one of their standard duties when they come on shift is that they do a, a wipe down and, and clean. They work um, at doing that uh, at least once or if not twice a day. Right. Have you seen uh, with this, Tom, it, it might be too, too early to tell, but have you seen helicopter volume maybe decrease and ground increase, or have you seen any noticeable so, difference? Yeah, so it's a little difficult to really get a full um, uh, picture on this because we've had some challenging weather over the past couple of weeks. Um, We've had some torrential rain uh, storms and Mm -hmm. and everything else, so not quite sure if uh, some of the volume change is related um, uh, related to weather or what we have converted a number of the trips into ground and so our ground uh, numbers have picked up a little bit uh, when i look at specifically our rotor crews going by ground um, for mm-hmm. instance in that uh, manner the other thing that i think uh, we're seeing uh, a dynamic is um, people aren't out and about and so we're not seeing as many uh, motor vehicle accidents and that kind of thing Um, so some of those volume numbers are down similarly elective surgeries and all of that have been uh, pretty much put on hold so you you may not be seeing some transports that potentially could be uh, coming from from that so overall I think our volume is down a little bit um, more on the air side, but again, I caution that it might be weather-related more than anything else at right. this point, right. the long-term. Are any of your uh, non-clinical or non-communication staff working from home now? Yeah, so we uh, we had an access to be able to work remotely, although it wasn't real reliable and and consistent. And so one of the things, uh, good things that came out of all of this is uh, my IT team here really worked vigilantly over mm-hmm. the past week or so and got uh, us set up with a much more robust, uh, reliable uh, remote access system. And so uh, we do have a fair amount of people that are trading off working uh, from home and only coming into the office when they absolutely have to for certain reasons. Um, and I'm trying to keep you know people away as much as they can. Um, of course, all meetings are are virtual now, um, either using some kind of a, a WebEx or that kind of system versus right. a, a conference call or a video conference. Um, so we're trying to do as much as we can. Governor DeWine yesterday issued a stay-at-home order for the state of Ohio. I saw that. Well, that doesn't include us um, because we're you know considered essential personnel and services. Um, I am asking our crew to respect that, and and those people that don't need to be into work, please not to come into work and work from home. Yeah, this has put a lot of pressure on IT. I've been reading articles not just in you know, our air medical uh, critical care transport mm-hmm. world, it's uh, everyone, and it's putting a big load on the on the Internet uh, uh, for handling yep. all that. So have yep, you certainly. seen any financial impact uh, so far, Tom? 
to the program? Well, I think that's going to be uh, yet to see because it's mm-hmm. so early. Um, you know, I think that'll be the challenge because there's a lag in what we see collected versus, you know, what we bill. So um, you asked me that yes. in about, you know, two months and I'll know more. Um, but right now, um, not so much. What I think I will see is, is you know, uh, how are our insurance companies, how are they keeping up with, with everything, and are they paying timely and uh, all of that. That'll be the, the challenge um, more than anything else. Right. So what is your greatest concern with COVID-19? I think the greatest concern that I have is is probably the mental wellness of our our staff mm. and really looking at that. Um, you know, I think uh, I remember early on in the days of HIV when that first came out um, and how that played on the mental people um, that were taking care of patients that were HIV positive. Same thing here. Anybody that is COVID-19 positive, it kind of plays on you. And then am I taking it home to my family? Am I, um, you know, how am I? doing physically as well as mentally. Um, yes. I think that's where my biggest concern is, is really just making sure that we've got the resources available to help them work through those processes and um, know that we have uh, equipped them well. We've we've given them the necessary education to protect them in, in how to transport these patients. Again, I go back to the early HIV days. You know, prior to that, we we didn't even wear gloves and everything else. And and now, you know, we are much better at universal precautions. I think that this will change how we do things moving forward, hopefully, and that we are much more reliable in how we're taking care of of patients with uh, known respiratory um, issues. Have you seen an increase with uh, EAP care? With your staff? Uh, haven't yet. Uh-huh. We haven't yet. But, you know, we've been having a lot of conversations with them and yep. making sure that it is available to them. We have uh, uh, started uh, a year or so ago, we started a peer-assisted wellness program. Um, one of our flight nurses uh, developed that with a comfort dog, and uh, we have uh, trained up uh, a number of our personnel to be able to assist with that. So should we need to have even the peer-assisted uh, wellness, uh, we have that uh, available to them as well, and they are uh, very well aware of that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, any other comments, Tom? No, I think uh, the, the, you know, I hope that some good comes out of this uh, in that uh, going forward, People will be better prepared in handling uh, respiratory types of, of uh, airborne diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would hope that uh, our, our systems are going to be set up better to handle disasters, and especially as we look at what do we need to do down the road. Unfortunately, we set up for these things, and then we don't use them for a number of years, and it just falls right off the map and we forget uh, how to do all of that. I'm very blessed here in Central Ohio. We have a a coalition called the Central Ohio Trauma Systems. It's all the hospitals and EMS in Central Ohio that come together and work on different things like disaster planning and, uh, um, you know, all of the different facets of 
of uh, it, when our hospitals get overrun, where are we going to take uh, patients to and all of that. So we're well set up. Um, now we're going to see in actual practice how well we really are. So right. I'm hoping that down the road people don't forget about this and that some changes occur as a result. Yeah. Well, Tom, I know you're very busy. I'm going to let you uh, get back to work. But, I, again, thank you for thank you. taking the time uh, today to uh, help uh, get information out to other programs that are dealing with this. So thank you. Appreciate it, Edward. Have a great day. You too. Next, I interviewed Jim Hauser, Senior Director of Medical Operations, and Dr. Frank Guyette, Medical Director, both who are with Stat Medivac. Okay, Jim, Dr. Guyette, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I know you're really busy with um, uh, the, your program with, uh, and, and reacting to the COVID-19. So thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Absolutely. It's our pleasure to be here. We think it's important that we take this opportunity to share information as we can. Yeah, excellent. And that's exactly why I'm doing the podcast today is to share that information. So has Stat Medivac, have you transported any known COVID-19 cases as yet? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we've transported cases both by air and by our uh, critical care ground uh, service, and our air has been rotor away. And uh, so those were known cases. Uh, do you know of any cases that were uh, not symptomatic, you know, that, that, but that were later found once you'd take, taken them to the hospital? Yes, we had several cases where they were essentially um, PUIs or people under investigation uh, um, okay. in terms of maybe had some form of the symptom complex, either had fever or respiratory illness. Uh, and it was unknown as to whether or not it was COVID. Um, to my knowledge, we haven't transported anyone who uh, was uh, was either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic that had COVID. Um, but most of our, our patients are interfacility ICU to ICU or, or ED to ICU. Got you. Have, have you had staff that's – so you have had staff that's been – exposed at least or have done these transports um have any of them contracted the virus or do you have any of them um so we haven't had any staff that have been exposed uh, to the virus of course if they are uh, uh, properly within their ppe and uh, the patient is contained as we've given them guidance uh, that would not be considered exposed but certainly they have transported patients that have had the virus um, as, as a result, we've not had anybody that has been of uh, concern or risk for exposure uh, to date. Uh, we have had several individuals that have been on prophylactic quarantine. And interestingly, none of those have been work-related, uh, but uh, challenged with it being in the community is we've had several that have been sure. questionably exposed to sure. others at home, which creates a whole other issue when it comes to staffing, trying to manage our staff through quarantine. Um, and thankfully, uh, as time has gone on, each of those have been removed from quarantine as uh, their respective suspected exposure has been uh, tested negative. Mm -hmm. So have you been taking extra precautions with the staff? Are you providing, you know, like extra training or any uh, special equipment or supplies you're using? 
Yeah, so we've we've taken uh, the stance of trying to follow uh, CDC guidelines and uh, our UPMC uh, partner guidelines as closely as possible, and that means that we're essentially doing droplet plus precautions. So uh, all crew uh, are interfacing with these patients wearing goggles as eye protection, wearing N95 masks, uh, gown, and gloves uh, for any direct patient care. Uh, we've chosen to go with the N95 both in the aircraft and in the ground critical care transport unit yep. and with an N95 for our pilot uh, as a, out of an abundance of caution because uh, we won't be able to predict necessarily when the patient will require an aerosolized uh, or aerosol generating procedure. So uh, should we have to perform an emergency airway intervention uh, or do CPR in the back of the aircraft or in the back of the critical care ground transport unit, we want to make sure that our crew was uh, sufficiently covered. Uh, and to your point about education, uh, we put out uh, education guidelines that basically amalgamated our um, infection prevention policy and uh, our uh, universal precautions policy uh, into one uh, coherent guideline, and then we did education on it, uh, both through um, uh, through uh, chats on uh, uh, our through our computer network, and also uh, by releasing videos of how to properly don and doff PPE. Uh, we had trained the crews to do this previously during uh, the Ebola uh, uh, event. Um, but uh, we wanted to make sure that the training was uh, fresh. Oh, and sorry, just to, just to follow on to that point. Sure. You know, in addition to our medical, our medical crews, um, our AMTs, our uh, aircraft maintenance technicians have all been provided with additional guidance on uh, using PPE when they're cleaning the medical interiors. Um, again, we we. We ensure that our crews decon the aircraft before sending them to maintenance. But uh, you know, obviously there there's always um, uh, unexpected issues that could come up. So we want to we want to make sure that uh, everybody is is protected, and they're also doing the basics as well, such as cleaning their workstations and you know doing hand washing techniques and such. Have you had to go? Is it? Uh, easier in a uh, ground ambulance or uh, the helicopter to do decontamination? Um, you know, I think it depends on the situation. So uh, the for this, because it's primarily droplet spread and you're, you're concerned about surfaces, uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't really think it makes a difference one way or another. Um, you know, certainly if there were, if there was a, a significant release of fluid or whatnot, uh, it might be more complicated to do uh, in the aircraft, but um, uh, the way that we we design our infection prevention uh, protocol, uh, the the patient is fairly well contained, uh, and the risk of droplet spread is pretty minimal, uh, assuming we don't have to do one of these uh, aerosol generating interventions. Right. So. Uh, you know, in, in general, I, I would say it, would, it doesn't really matter. So it hasn't been a decision point for you in, in triaging if it's a known patient and this is the only thing they're being transferred for, whether it go by ground or air, or is there other factors? Uh, you know, there, there are, um, 
there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Uh, obviously, we, we cover a, uh, a region that uh, encompasses four states, uh, and we have very long transports. So mm -hmm. there are, uh, you know, there are definitely advantages. There are definitely times when the aircraft is advantageous, uh, and then there are other times when the ground vehicles are uh, advantageous. So we we assess each mission individually, and we try to send the most appropriate asset uh, on the mission. Yeah, yeah. Are you having trouble obtaining supplies? We have not had any difficulty as of today, uh, but we are certainly anticipating there are going to be challenges. Um, uh, we have enough on hand to go a month or so uh, just with general operations, uh, and we are ordering up, of course, as is everybody else in the country. And so to that, we're getting routine communications from every one of our vendors and suppliers uh, warning us that there will be uh, supply constraints as we move forward. Uh, so we're trying to be cognizant of um, not only PPE, but soft supplies, um, uh, whether it be ventilator circuits or uh, various uh, soft supplies that we use during the management of a critical care patient uh, to try to order up where appropriate uh, so that we can anticipate uh, having longer uh, times for uh, delivery from order uh, in, the, in the very near future. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like... Um that's become a big problem, especially face masks and in certain uh, uh, areas of the country, you know, with a uh, number of companies, you know, uh, going into uh, that usually haven't been doing that type of uh, work, uh, creating, making them, or uh, and same with ventilators. Have um, on the hospitals uh, you're going into, are you seeing uh, a lot of extra precautions that they're taking with EMS and air medical transport? personnel into their facilities yeah we, we've noticed that uh, some of them are starting to screen even the EMS crews to ask if they've been mm -hmm. uh, exposed to a COVID patient um, and uh, in addition they're certainly more vigilant about uh, wearing uh, PPE uh, which is laudable I mean that's that's going to be necessary in order for us to, uh, to, you know, flatten the curve as it were. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the interesting dilemma it puts us in is that you ask one of our crew if they have been in contact with a COVID positive patient. And the answer is absolutely. That's what we do. Uh, but, uh, we, we explained that, uh, we've done it using, um, the appropriate PPE directed by the CDC and risk of transmission is low. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm seeing, uh, you know, hospitals doing, uh, you know, gearing up for things, too. So have have you noticed, um, it might be still too early to tell, has your volume, uh, either air or ground, gone up or down um, with, with uh, well, I guess because of these types of patients or maybe because uh, you're not transporting some other types of patients because people are staying home? We've not seen an appreciable difference in our volumes to date. Okay. Uh, certainly, we've had the uh, typical waxing and waning related to weather. Yeah. Um, but as we talk with our inpatient colleagues, uh, fortunately, uh, it appears that uh, as a society, we are paying attention and heeding warnings, and uh, individuals are staying away from emergency departments where appropriate. And certainly, that coupled with the anecdotal lessening of the population on the roadways and 
uh, extrapolating all of that out, we would assume that we could see it, but we've not we've not noticed an appreciable difference today. Okay. And is your like non-clinical or non-communication staff? Are you seeing people uh, given the option to work from home, or can they? Uh, yes. Yeah. So there. Um, right now, what we've done is we've sent all the non-clinical, uh, non-communications people home. Um, they're most of them are working remotely. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a couple of um, there are a couple of uh, operationally critical people. Uh, for instance, our uh, you know air, some of our aircraft uh, uh, maintenance records people uh, who uh, who can't do portions of their job at home. So what we've done is we've set up alternating schedules, both with our AMTs, with uh, some of our records people and whatnot, to reduce the number of people in any given location, uh, such that um, you know they they work alternating schedules and we can practice social distancing within within the, our facilities. Uh, our communication center is is similar in that we uh, we staff our communication center with doctors uh, 24/7 uh, because they. They manage uh, an enormous volume of calls, both from air and ground and also commercial airlines. But we've sent the doctors home, and they're working remotely. Hmm. And we've been able to take our comm center staff and put them in the doctor's offices uh, so that everyone is separated. Oh, wow. That's, that, that's uh, it's nice that you can do that. Has it been, um, uh, it's, uh, been a strain on your IT staff to do all this? <laughs> Huh? They've been working hard for sure. Yeah, I, I see that. I, you know, I, you read a lot of stories about uh, not just our, uh, our medical community, but just all businesses, the the strain, and and also security type issues too. For people working at home. Have you done anything extra to, um, you know, clean, sanitize your crew quarters areas, over and above what you usually do? It's not necessarily over and above what we usually do because I, I say that cautiously because we like to think that we're doing the right things all the time. Um, but really what we've done is tried to make sure that we are effective and thoughtful in our communication of the common sense basic things. Um, it, it, it's concerning right now as we're seeing data coming back uh, about how uh, healthcare workers and, and other areas that have been fighting this are uh, becoming ill because they're uh, hypervigilant when they're caring for someone who's ill uh, because they have that person in front of them, but then uh, they go back and they take off their mask and they're with their colleague and they're not as uh, vigilant uh, with the risk that the, the person that they work with, too, could potentially be uh, someone who is uh, at risk for exposing them to the uh, uh, the virus. So uh, what we've done is really just been very methodical in our uh, communication of basic hygiene principles, making sure that uh, common services are wiped down, wiped down on a routine interval, um, making sure, uh, as, as uh, silly as some may think it may be, social distancing in the crew quarters, uh, mm -hmm. being sensitive to the fact that they shouldn't be sitting right next to each other when they're going charting to encouraging them. Uh, once daily activities and briefings are done to go into their respective rooms and um, obviously, we want to make sure that we keep some cohesiveness to the team, but at the same time trying to apply those distancing, dis distancing procedures where practical, and, and then reminding them common food, 
those type of things should really be uh, discouraged uh, now. I mean, again, many of these things are honestly things that we try to communicate or remind ourselves of during flu season, right. uh, but we tend to get a little bit last, laxed, and now uh, we're just making sure that we're uh, being heightened in our communication with all of those basic fundamentals. Yeah. It's very important that they don't get each other sick. And, and you said um, all the crew are wearing masks. Which, which type of mask are you using? They're uh, all wearing. So we have. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's right. They're all wearing N95. Yeah, um, that seems to be the. Every every patient is getting masks. So if they're not in a closed circuit ventilator, a mask is being placed on the patient or over their oxygen delivery source. So if it's a nasal cannula or a, a non-rebreather. Uh, the mask is going over the device uh, to minimize droplet spread. Uh, we um, are uh, discouraging uh, any passengers, uh, but in rare circumstances, such as when you have a, a pediatric patient uh, right. who needs a parent, uh, they're being masked as well with simple surgical masks. But uh, the, con- the crew is all wearing the N95s just because of that concern for potentially needing to do an aerosol generating procedure in the aircraft or yeah. in the ground critical unit. Yeah. Have, uh, since you haven't seen much with your volumes or you haven't seen any financial impact then as yet. We certainly haven't seen anything from the, uh, uh, revenue side, but uh, as you can imagine, we've seen some unexpected expenses related to preparedness. Um, we're oh, very okay. fortunate. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our leadership has given us the latitude to uh, ramp up where we need to ramp up. Uh, we just uh, submitted a, a requisition for uh, additional Hamilton T1 ventilators um, uh, so that we could have uh, additional equipment at the ready, uh, just anticipating. Uh, life continues to go on. We're going to continue uh, having mishaps. Inevitably, we'll have a, a piece of equipment that may be uh, out for uh, maintenance and Knowing what we're we're seeing, uh, we want to make sure that we have equipment that we can readily put into service and not have to um, wait for delays in repair time. So we've been fortunate that our leadership team, Doug Garrison, uh, and the the team were kind enough to allow us to move ahead uh, and be somewhat proactive with uh, uh, spending capital uh, to get these things ordered. So certainly from an expense perspective, I'm sure there's going to be unanticipated expense for the 2020 budget. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, so for, for both of you, what is your greatest concern with COVID-19? I, I think, I think we, we, we share the same concern. Uh, first and foremost, it's the health of, the, of our, our staff and their families. Mm-hmm. Um, we have reiterated ad nauseum force protection, as we mentioned above the uh, discussion about making sure that we're not getting each other sick is critical. Um, um, if our staff are not healthy, um, uh, um, or, or they're not doing something appropriately and, and um, uh, exposing their family and then creating an, an additional stress of having to take care of a sick family member, uh, we can't help our patients. So um, that's our priority. Of course, we're worrying about supply chain. We're worrying about um, uh, uh, many of the other infrastructure things that are, are occurring and the pressure that we're seeing with having to adjust our staffing, adjusting our um uh, daily operations, but uh, making sure that we have enough staff to do what we need to do is probably our most most uh, of most concern. Have have uh, you had to um, 
provide, you know, extra staff meetings or uh, reiterating, you know, EAP types of programs? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our, our first uh, our first point is that we want to make sure that um, our our crews feel safe uh, in their work environment and that they have confidence that we're uh, protecting them. So to that end, we've uh, in, had weekly calls uh, every Monday at 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, we have uh, discussions with them, uh, which is usually a brief 10-minute update and then 20 minutes to answer any questions that they have. Uh, we also take questions asynchronously through email. Um, after each one of these transports, we've uh, done a, a, a hot wash with the crew and the management team to take the lessons learned and integrate them into our procedures. Um, from the standpoint of looking out for your fellow crew members, uh, we've instituted a um, essentially a wellness check at the beginning of the shift. Oh. And, you know, obviously a lot of it is uh, looking at, you know, have you, have you been ill? Have you had a fever? Have you had a cough? But it's also a check-in to, to see, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing at home? You know, uh, to make sure that, that people are um, both healthy uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, uh, to be able to go out and execute the mission. Sure. That's, that's excellent. You know, it's real important to support, support our crews out there. Are there any other comments that you have or any other uh, words of wisdom for other programs? There's, there's a lot, there's a lot certainly that we can learn from each other. Uh, these are extremely challenging times. Uh, mm -hmm. We as an industry have to work together. Um, in fact, we've engaged several uh, of our colleagues uh, within the uh, critical care transport industry uh, to uh, establish an informal network so we can share procedures, guidelines, and lessons Excellent. back and forth. Excellent. Um, uh, and in fact, that's, that's, uh, certainly we're glad to be here discussing this with you today, but that's, uh, is where we started. We want, we want to provide that opportunity. If anybody wants to engage us, um, certainly they're welcome to contact Dr. Guyette and myself or anybody from our team. Uh, we want to make sure that we can share our information. We've been, uh, forwarding, uh, policies, procedures, guidelines that we've been putting together, um, so that we can share that knowledge and then also quite frankly have others in uh, the industry look and see where we may have gaps uh, so we're trying to really be thoughtful about what we're putting together for our staff and humble in how we're doing it so that we can make sure that we're um, uh, providing safe and knowledgeable guidance to our teams um, uh, dr guyette's been leading the charge with continuously scanning all of our medical literature uh, we're looking at social media other experts in the in the infectious disease world, uh, critical care transport world, anywhere we can find information, uh, we've been taking it back and reviewing it. Um, uh, so we're certainly interested in sharing and we're also very interested in hearing what others have to say. So I think that would be, that would be our big uh, takeaway at the moment is um, making sure that we're all working together and sharing information. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to do this. You know, we're in uncharted waters here and uh, we've all got to work together with this and if there's uh, ways of doing things or uh, thinking about things or supporting staff or ordering supplies, um, it's a great way to, to share that. So I thank you both again for um, taking the time. I know you're all very busy uh, with this uh, virus, and but uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your time. 
It's our pleasure. Thank you for uh, giving us a platform to, to speak about this and uh, hopefully uh, encourage other people to open up a dialogue with us for uh, learning how to do this properly. Next, we're going to talk to Dr. Timothy Burke, who's a retired infectious disease specialist who has been following the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, welcome, uh, Dr. Burke. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to uh, uh, talk to me today and be part of this uh, podcast that I'm doing on COVID-19 for the air medical and critical care transport world. So uh, welcome. I'm glad to be here, Ed. I'm glad to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, with your knowledge and experience as an infectious disease specialist about COVID-19 and how it might differ from other coronaviruses uh, or, or, or the flu, too? Um, <clears throat> sure. Uh, the coronavirus uh, is a, um, it's a, actually a fairly large family of RNA viruses, and uh, there are <clears throat> uh, some members of the family that are um, have been recognized for years as a cause of the common cold. Uh, but there are now three uh, individual uh, coronavirus species that have been associated with severe uh, human consequences. The first uh, of these was um, SARS. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the second is uh, uh, an, envir uh, an infection called MERS or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And those um, have been, uh, over the last several years, I think um, SARS was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Um, but this current virus is a, what we call a novel uh, species uh, that uh, has made the jump from from animals uh, to man, and you know the the coronavirus family has been found to be uh, in all kinds of different mammalian species, uh, but uh, because it does have the ability to genetically change. Um, it, uh, it appears that this current strain is um, uh, much better adapted to um, spread from human to human, and, and unfortunately, it's also causing, uh, at least in some infected individuals, um, severe consequences, including death. It, uh, Dr. Burke, is, is the SARS and MERS... Uh, were those similar then? Did they come from, uh, well, make the jump from animals the, to humans also? Yes. Okay. Right. The, the SARS was uh, felt to um, be uh, uh, evolved or associated with um, um, an Asian mammal called the civet cat. Uh, and then <clears throat> the MERS um, virus, which has been, with the exception of travel-related cases, it's been confined uh, to the Middle East, in particular, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And 
the uh, the Middle East respiratory virus is associated with camels. Um, and so the uh, it's at this point it's not clear uh, which um, species of mammal uh, the current coronavirus made the jump from, uh, but it's um, it's something that can happen uh, relatively easily because in in China there's this cultural practice of buying your um, meat at a live animal market, and then. So there's a bunch of different species of animals, uh, but they're all in cages right next to each other. And so there's, um, you know, a lot of opportunity for exchange and, um, and genetic mutation of the viruses as it moves from species to species. And um, that appears to be the, the origin of this. But uh, uh, now we're, you know, uh, the main concern is, its effect on the human population. Um, and it's clear from uh, looking at the <clears throat> news reports that it, it uh, is highly contagious. Uh, and, and the, um, uh, the uh, unfortunate truth is uh, that healthcare workers appear to be uh, in among the highest risk groups. Uh, and that's just a testament to how easily uh, it's spread. And the, the spread is, is from something in the uh, infection world we call respiratory droplets. Mm -hmm. These are small particles of uh, secretions like saliva that uh, anytime a person coughs or sneezes, um, the, those particles are generated and they're in close proximity to the person who's doing the coughing or the sneezing. And so that's the, <clears throat> uh, the underlying um, rationale for doing the, um, like the six foot uh, proximity distancing if possible. Uh, and, and that's why it's so important for healthcare personnel to um, be religious about the use of personal protective equipment. What types of things do you think are most important for healthcare workers? Um, the well, the use of masks and eye protection. Mm -hmm. um, the, it's is clear that healthcare workers understand that eyeglasses or contact lenses do not constitute adequate eye protection, and you know the. The, uh, the eyes have mucous membranes, just like the lining of the nose and the mouth and throat. Uh, and so the eyes are, um, you know, a, a possible route of, of uh, entry into the body. Uh, and that's why um, the uh, <clears throat> eye protection is important. And it needs to be, you know, like a transparent plastic face shield or uh, tighter-fitting goggles. Mm -hmm. um, and the, unfortunately, the goggles and face shields are um, uh, part of the protective equipment that appears to be in short supply. So, um, you know, a lot of healthcare workers are using their sport glasses, you know, which are, you know, 
usually closer fitting around the eye and would provide more protection than, say, standard eyeglasses. Right. Or, or reusing things, right? Where in the past that you wouldn't be doing that. Right. It would be single use, although um, now we have, if, if they can't, if there aren't enough for single use, um, then the, the uh, eye protection needs to be cleaned uh, with um, <clears throat> an approved um, uh, cleaning liquid or uh, right. impregnated cloth or whatever um, that the manufacturer of the face equipment has said is okay to use. Yeah. So is um, as far as risk factors, there's the droplets you talk about, and then you also read now about, um, you know, on surfaces that it can stay on different types of surfaces like steel and plastic and cardboard at different, uh, you know, different times. Uh, what do you do, you know, on prevention with that? You have to be meticulous about cleaning surfaces after a after um, those, you know, surfaces were in, um, uh, you know, used to or in proximity to uh, caring for a known or suspected coronavirus patient. And so the air medical example would be the interior of the craft. Right. Um, because, you know, they're, they're not real big. Uh, and so I think the uh, assumption should be that <clears throat> patient secretions could, you know, get on all of the surfaces uh, inside the craft, which... I, you know, uh, I'm not a specialist in air medical, but I would guess that uh, cleaning the interior uh, is a rather daunting task. Yeah, there's there's decontamination processes for both air and ground. Yeah, when you're transporting patients, so and then it's also protecting the putting a mask on the patient too. To yes, yes, so. um, uh, if, if that's possible, if the patient, you know, uh, that's right. Yeah. If if the patient would require intubation, uh, you know that should obviously done before getting on the craft. But if 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 it needs to be done while on a in flight, then that you know that is going to generate even more aerosols. Yes. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> we know about this virus is it is susceptible to ultraviolet light and in hospitals uh, for several years now um, uh, UV type uh, robots are used to do terminal cleaning inside hospital rooms I, I don't know if anything like that is used in air medical um, but uh, that's something that you know, could conceivably be wheeled into the interior of the craft and um, and uh, expose the whole, all the inner surfaces to a um, <clears throat> to the UV light. But I don't think I would use that as a substitute for you know standard surface cleaning. Being be in addition to, this is, yeah. yeah, yeah. So is there? Um, you know, once someone, you know, we, we read that 80% of the people get it might have mild to moderate cases. Is there an immunity that's built up? I've heard different things about that. 
Well, um, I recently reviewed the uh, literature uh, for the coronavirus family, and uh, the um, author of that textbook chapter said that there did not appear to be protective immunity um, uh, once an individual recovers from uh, a coronavirus. So, if you, but uh, I think that that it, because this is a novel virus. Uh, it, that really remains um, an unresolved issue. Right. It certainly would be <clears throat> good news if uh, we found out that um, it, uh, it did provide protective immunity. Uh, having an infection provided protective immunity, but I, I don't think we know that at this point. And would the um, in uh, other coronaviruses, is the immunity just for that? season or is it uh, could you catch it the next year or are you saying that potentially you could be infected, recover and then immediately get infected again? Theoretically. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the case is if you if there is no protective immunity for uh, another example of that would be <clears throat> staph infection uh, which is, you know, it's a bacteria, not a virus, so it's kind of a different critter, but but there is no protective immunity. If you recover from a serious, say, MRSA-type staph infection, uh, it unfortunately doesn't protect you um, from having another one. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what protective immunity means, and so there's lots of examples. The other example would be the virus measles if you have natural measles then you sh you're considered to be immune for life right uh, but th that's just sort of underscores the variability in the in the uh, microbial world of uh, how the immune system uh, interacts and reacts to these different challenges right so uh, an another thing that I hear you know a lot of people compare this to the flu what 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 is the comparison to the flu, like the flu that's going around this year? Well, <clears throat> different family of mm -hmm. viruses completely. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, so no, no genetic relationship at all between influenza and uh, coronavirus or COVID-19. Uh, uh, I think a source of the confusion is that they both cause respiratory illness. They both enter the body in the same way through mucous membranes, uh, mouth, throat, nose, eyes. Um, so they get into the body in the same way and they, the you know, symptoms that are caused by viruses entering the body in that way include, you know, cough, sore throat, fever, uh, so they can look uh, quite a bit alike, and um, the <clears throat> uh, there needs to be testing. So someone who is presenting with respiratory symptoms, like I mentioned, fever, coughs, <laughs> um, sore throat, nasal discharge, etc., um, they need to be tested for influenza as well as the COVID because because we're in the flu season now, 
um, they they can both circulate together, and um, you can't really tell by symptoms. Which is why testing is so important, and why uh, it's been the critical lack of tests. I guess that you know we read about right now. Right. The other important thing to underscore is um, the flu vaccine provides zero immunity to coronavirus. Right. So people should not have a uh, false sense of security if they've been vaccinated for flu. And you know, as I would recommend, all um, people working in air medical transport uh, get the flu shot every year. Uh, but unfortunately, it. There's no relation and therefore no protection uh, conferred by having had a flu shot. Right. Well, well speaking of, of, of that type of thing, is, are there things that are looking hopeful out there as far as, I, I know a vaccine's probably, what, 12 to 18 months away, but are there other drugs I've read about that uh, might, you know, maybe stop the replication of the virus inside the body of you? seen anything that looks hopeful or what's your comments on that? I would say the jury is out mm-hmm. way out yeah. that people who are, uh, are, you know, saying that an effective treatment is right around the corner, frankly, are whistling past the graveyard. Mm. They don't know. And I think it's irresponsible to speculate that, um, that treatments, uh, are just around the corner. The, the medical research community is looking at a number of candidate agents. But until we have, um, you know, clinical trial results, we just don't know. And, uh, you know, it's <clears throat> this is an unrelated virus, but if you look at um, the HIV pandemic, uh, the virus was recognized in the early 80s, we, you know, knew what it looked like, and we had, um, we had an understanding of its genetic makeup. But it was more than a decade later that effective treatments were developed. It wasn't until the mid-1990s. So let's hope that uh, it doesn't take that long, but we honestly don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly very, uh, I think, First time I've, you know, we've heard of the, you know, the SARS and MERS and uh, the uh, even H1N1, different types of uh, things. But this is the first sort of large-scale pandemic that we've had in a number of years, correct? Well, it's um, it's on a scale of the uh, uh, 2009 H1N1 pandemic. The, the thing that uh, is different about that particular pandemic is that uh, the fatality rate was much, much lower than what we're seeing right see. now. And so the, um, <clears throat> you know, there was rapid worldwide spread in 2009. Um, it was first recognized in returnees from Mexico, American a tourist coming back from Mexico, um, but but rapidly, um, uh, it, the H1N1 was all over the world, and that we that's the kind of world we live in now. It's a, a hyper connected um, world, and you know you can get on an, uh, a jet 
and be anywhere on the planet, you know, within a day. Right. And, and so that, you know, that's, you look at the, um, the uh, outside of China cases, the initial ones were all travel related. They were either, they had been living and working in China or they were on a cruise ship that had visited the Orient. Um, but now, you know, <clears throat> colloquially, the cat's out of the bag and we're having community transmission across the planet. The, the thing that's different and scary about this is the, that the fatality rate is so much higher and there's no treatment, there's no vaccine. With H1N1 in 2009, there was a bit of a delay in getting uh, uh, an effective vaccine, but it actually, <clears throat> you know, it emerged in the spring uh, where in the Northern Hemisphere, that's about the time we start making flu vaccine for use the following fall and winter. And there was a little bit of a delay, uh, but but fairly quickly, uh, within about nine months of the emergence and recognition that this was a novel virus, there was a vaccine. But, you know, flu vaccine technology and manufacturing was already pretty well established. We've been doing it for decades. Right. Uh, in contrast, there has never been uh, a, an effective uh, coronavirus vaccine. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, daunting, and, and the uh, you know you you worry. You know, I think from a healthcare perspective, it, I think at first they were saying it was mostly folks. You know over 60 or ones with um, um, pre-existing conditions, but that seems to have changed recently as we're getting more information that uh, a lot more right. young, younger folks are getting this too. Uh, yeah. And, and getting severe cases. Yeah. 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 And, you know, a lot of those younger individuals are healthcare workers. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> so that's the, so it's a, it's a real challenge for the, the healthcare system worldwide. So any, uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Burke. Is there any other comments that you would uh, like to say to our air medical and critical care transport community? Well, I would say, um, you know, you should take seriously the recommendations for infection control precautions. I know that in the in the heat of the moment when you're dealing with a potentially critical transport, um, it's, you know, almost human nature to, um, you know, focus on the patient before you focus on protecting yourself. But that's a recipe for disaster um, with this virus. That's a that's a really good point because we can't afford to to lose healthcare workers. I think in Italy, I read there's a number of physicians that have died from the yes. uh, from the virus. Right. Um, so, and you know that was the same different kind of virus, uh, different causes, different uh, illness, but same thing happened during the West Africa Ebola outbreak. Yes. Lots of physicians and nurses died. Yep. Well, thank you again for taking the time. This is really helpful yep. for our community. My pleasure, Pre Edward. Appreciate your time.
Next, we're going to be talking to Jeff Ritchie, who's the Interim Executive Director at Airlift Northwest. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time. I know that uh, you are very busy with what's going on right now uh, in your role as uh, Interim Executive Director. Um, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad that I could be here. Uh, Jeff, the first question, have you, uh, has Airlift Northwest uh, transported any known COVID-19 cases as yet? Um, n not as of yet. We have transported patients that have exhibited system symptoms of, uh, of, of the, the COVID-19 respiratory issues, and, uh, and, but none that have been COVID positive as of yet. Got you. So, yeah, I was going to ask because uh, uh, some programs have, but then uh, others, you know, it's so hard now because uh, patients are asymptomatic for quite a long time. And then, you know, have you discovered, you know, once they're in the hospital that uh, they show up as positive? So you haven't had any as yet then? That has been known to us right at the onset of the request. Now, yeah. we have had one patient that has tested positive post, but um, but that was post the flight that we found that out. Mm -hmm. um, the nice thing is is that um, since we've been doing this here in Seattle, um, and with our collaboration, well, with UW Medicine um, and us being a part of UW Medicine, we have been at the forefront of coming up with protocols and questions that our communication center asks um, of the 911 dispatcher and of the hospitals to be able to make sure that we know all the symptoms. And if it's a scene call, we can go ahead and tell the first responders to make sure the patient has a mask on if that's possible uh, so that we're protecting everybody. Yes. Have, have um, you had staff um, uh, been exposed either, you know, on the job or off the job? Uh, not that, uh, not of my knowledge. Okay. Um, so what... What precautions are you taking with staff? Are you providing extra training? Is there specific equipment uh, or supplies that you're using over and above what you normally use? Uh, so we have been providing extra training. Um, we have mm. um, uh, a, a very incredible uh, uh, safety officer that has take this on, taken this on, and he has been going out to the bases to be able to go over doffing and donning of PPE, um, since the the, uh, the the PP has changed from airborne to droplet, we've been going out there and uh, making sure that we have that. And then, plus, we also go through how do you decontaminate uh, or disinfect your your aircraft, and then yourself. Uh, all our flight teams um, have to have two flight suits with them. And at each base, we have uh, washer and dryers that are specific for mm -hmm. disinfecting your, your equipment or your flight suits so that we can clean everything, let it air out, and then put ourselves back into service and put a new flight suit on. Right. So um, you follow the usual decontamination process, though, then? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we have. We have with, uh, I, well, it's the, the purple top wipes, I think, is what it is. I don't know the, the name brand of it, but everyone says the Purple Top Wipes. Okay. Are, are you having any trouble? You seem to be, I guess, what was the epicenter now in New York is, but still a lot of cases. Uh, um, are you having trouble getting supplies? Um, the nice, so 
we are getting supplies. Um, we Part of UW Medicine, we stood up our incident command about four weeks ago because um, we knew this was coming. And mm-hmm. our supply chain team has been giving us updates and going everywhere to be able to get supplies. We have dashboards that tell us how many days we have on hand. And then at Airlift Northwest, what we do is we collect all the PPE that we have, the N95s, our gowns, our face shields, our our goggles, and then we calculate on a daily basis how many is at every base and then to figure out how many flights that we can do. We take that information and bring it back to the incident command and UW supply chain, and then they're able to be able to allocate the things that we need to be able to outfit our bases so that we're prepared. Right. And the, the hospitals must be taking on a lot of cases out there because of yeah. the number of cases yeah. that are in Washington. Yes, we yeah. have been seeing a lot of cases um, throughout the UW medicine system. Yes. Um, lots of testing. We actually stood up the, um, the first drive-through um, center uh, up at the UW Medical Center Northwest campus. I saw that. Yeah. That was actually... Actually, we and we have been um, specifically calling out um, a place that first responders could go to get tested, um, and which has been really, really successful as we partner with um, EMS and first responders in our communities. Yeah, yeah. Is um, have things changed? You know, with the hospitals um, having, you know, everywhere in the United States, but especially out there with the number of cases, you're seeing differences when your crews come in. Uh, of, of what they're being asked or, or are they even being on the site tested uh, before they come into the hospital? Are you seeing any of that? Uh, I've not had, uh, we've not been, I haven't heard of anybody uh, testing uh, EMS providers or our flight crews before they enter the hospital. Um, there has been a lot of, I mean, every hospital within UW Medicine, is, they're screening at the front door for visitors um, going into the hospital um, screening at the clinics, um, and then fever checks, um, too. That started last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you've already seen this, but um, well, UW Medicine, actually all the hospitals stopped doing elective surgeries last Monday, yep. Yep. and that's going to continue on until um, at least for the month of April. Yes. Are, are you doing, um, are, are you triaging, are you doing more, transports by ground than in the past or or is that changed we we are not we are not doing um, more transports by ground at least at airlift northwest we have been doing everything either rotary wing or fixed wing fixed wing right yeah okay and alaska has not seen that many cases yet right i think the last time no not that i have not that i have seen yeah um are your non-clinical, non-communication, like non-aviation staff working from home? You- yeah. Yes. And so my, um, so my non-clinical staff um, here, um, as of last week and into this week, um, I, everyone has been given the option to actually work from home if they have the ability to be able to do that. So, um, so right now we're down to very minimal staff here on the administration side. Yes. Has that uh, been an issue with uh, IT? I know they're they're getting taxed everywhere, not just in in uh, healthcare, but in all businesses. 
Yeah, and so I actually have got a great IT team, and then also with UW Medicine IT, uh, we have been doing everything via Zoom. Um, yep. And uh, today, in fact, we had our management team, and it was by Zoom, and one of our guys comes on from home and makes sure that we're all set up, and then he gets off the line, and we have our meeting. So it's working very, very well right now. So very successful. So I'm really proud of our IT team. Yeah, Airlift Northwest, I think, was ahead of a lot of programs, you know, many years ago with uh, using conferencing types of things with your mm -hmm. different bases. So that's great. Um, yeah, no, it is definitely a good connection to being so um, spread over all the way up into Alaska. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Uh, are you doing anything extra to extra sanitation with your crew quarters or when people come back? You, you mentioned that having, you know, washing uh, machines available and you have to have two um, flight suits with you. Any other types of things you're doing? Um, the main thing is making sure that we let the aircraft dry after we've cleaned, disinfected all of the touch points of the of the helicopter. But that is what we're that is the only thing that we have been doing right now. But there are things, um, innovation things that we're looking at. I know that um, some colleagues with the local ambulance company has been um, looking at foggers. And then we're also looking mm. at UV technology. Yep. Um, that's something at the hospital that that I used all the time for our environmental services team. We obviously clean everything, but then you put the UV robot into the room just to be able to make sure that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, completely clean. So have, we're looking into that right now. Yeah, have, have you seen an app? Is there uh, one that would be used in a helicopter or an ambulance? Have you seen anything? You know what? I have not seen one yet, but I have yeah. my safety officer looking into it as we speak. Yeah, interesting, because uh, our infectious disease specialist that I had interviewed had said that's something that you know could be looked at, and I wasn't familiar with any in the air medical world. Yeah. Um, I, we're just working with our vendors with uh, air methods and aeroware to be able to make sure that any new technology we want to introduce will be okay in our aircraft. So all the uh, crew, including the pilots, now wearing masks, and what, if so, what kind? Um, we are with the N95 masks yep. still that we have, and um, yes, all crew, pilots and um, and uh, flight flight nurses. All have that, and including also because we do have flight physicians um, from our EMS division uh, that uh, that fly with us. So everyone is fit tested and can wear um, yeah. those masks. That seems to be the the standard. From yeah, I'm talking to. Um, have uh, you seen uh, any uh, transport volume changes so far? Uh, have you seen an increase, decrease in your in the number of transports? I'd say that last week that uh, we, we saw a slight decrease, and I think that's falling in line with everyone staying at home. Um, uh, yep. and, and, I, and so I think that it's following, following that trend. I know that when I've talked to my colleagues at the emergency department uh, within UW Medicine, that the volume in the emergency department is significantly lower than it would be if we were not in this pandemic. Yes. And then I think uh, the question I think the question will be is preparing for when people start coming to the hospitals, and that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. Any uh, so probably still early to see if there's been any financial impact if flights are down or 
uh, expenses yeah. might be up or well, I think that um, so too early for us to be able to to be able to see that, but uh, but you know it, it there there has been more expense on getting more PPE, so our medical supplies yep. have been been we've been purchasing those, but yeah, a little bit too early for us to be able to see what this impact is going to be. Yep. And then, Jeff, what is your greatest concern with COVID nineteen? Um, I think it's surge. I think it's mm-hmm. having enough um, having a, enough medical supplies. It's having enough ICU beds, um, enough ventilators from the air medical side, making sure that I can have um, all my aircraft, including my spare, available with staff and um, and the medical equipment. Um, I need healthy staff, and that's what we're promoting. And we have um, put in place. Uh, and attestation that says you you need to say that you're healthy to be able to work today or don't come to work if you're sick so that we can find somebody else because we, we need everybody out there. Yep. Have you done anything extra with uh, employee assistance programs? or Because um, I know there's a, quite a mental stress with all this with all of us. Um, yeah, we have got a very good, robust um, employee assistant and peer-to-peer, um, uh, uh, it's not necessarily counseling, but peer-to-peer support is what I was, the word yeah. that I was looking at um, throughout UW Medicine and here at Airlift Northwest. Um, and in fact, that's actually an everyday occurrence that we have at Airlift is, is that there's always someone that you can call if you had a bad flight yep. or something yep. happened to be able to talk. but. Even at the UW Medicine level, um, we have um, set up uh, daycare uh, for employees uh, that at Airlift Northwest that they can utilize since schools were canceled two weeks ago uh, for the state of Washington so that people can come to work. Um, uh, and, uh, and we've been doing some morale boosters to vet food at a lot of the hospitals um, uh, to, and coffee on us, those type of things. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So, uh, any other comments on this? No, I, I just think that, uh, I, I guess I'm working with a great team and, uh, I'm really proud of, uh, of, of the innovation that's coming out of my medical directors. And, um, I feel that since Seattle was, was the beginning um we've learned a lot and we're always learning and we're making tweaks and um i think that that helps us to respond to communities that need us there to be able to get the the patients into uh, a quaternary uh facility like UW medicine right so what advice for other air medical programs that might not be seeing uh what you've already seen in the seattle and washington area my advice would be to be able to make sure that you've got a good supply of your medical supplies for PPE. Um, go through the training with doffing and donning, and that means not just having your flight teams do that, but you have to also have someone that's going to watch you doff and don. Mm-hmm. That is really, really important because people will take things off, and they might have not have sanitized um, a certain part, and they could have contaminated themselves. Yep. I think that's the first thing I think planned do a surge plan and um, talk about your staffing models is if I were to lose half of my staff, how am I going to be able to staff my bases um, to be able to deliver the care to the community that we're in? So those are the main things that, 
that I, that, that I would be working on. And then I think just like your question you asked before is make sure that you're really talking to your staff. The peer to peer support is really, really key because this is a stressful job and it's stressful to go and take care of those patients. And, um, and, and so those are the things that I would be really focusing on. And, and at any time, I mean, I'm happy to be able to share the things that we're doing. So, um, at any time. That's excellent. Then some of the other programs that I've talked to have said the same thing. And, I, and, the, and the reason I'm doing this is to get the, the word out to people and see what what they're doing and be able to be uh, better prepared. So really appreciate your time. I know you're up to your eyeballs with uh, everything going on out there. So thanks again, Jeff, for being part of this. You're welcome. Thanks, Ed. Next, I talked to Colby Colbert, who is the Vice President of Clinical Operations at LifeLink 3. Welcome, Colby, and thanks so much for taking the time. I know you guys are under tremendous stress with everything that's going on, so I really appreciate you taking a few minutes uh, with me. Yeah, thank you, Edward. I appreciate the opportunity to share our experiences at LifeLink 3. Sure. So have... um, have you seen, you know, not so much, uh, you know, things are relatively new in Minnesota, but uh, uh, are you doing things, you know, we don't know with the asymptomatic uh, nature of uh, this virus not coming out till much later, um, you know, what are you doing for, uh, you know, in transporting patients and taking precautions? Well, you were right about us, Matt. Um, being experienced in Minnesota regarding COVID-19 as we uh, didn't have the prevalence of it as other states did. Uh, Fortunately, that gave us an opportunity to learn from our neighbors and allowing that to um, talk to other programs to learn what they're doing in in response. Um, What we learned most of all early on in this process was when we were talking about cruise ships or visits from China um, it helped us, you know, have much more limits um, and a better understanding of those patients that had potential to have COVID-19. And as it progressed and proliferated uh, with the bag symptoms, as you alluded to earlier, it made, has made it much more difficult and has required us to take much more universal type precautions as it relates to patients with potential COVID-19. Yes. And so what precautions are you taking, you know, with, with staff? Are you, are you providing extra training? Is there any specific equipment or supplies that you're using? Yeah, um, the precautions that we're taking are quite immense. Um, you know, one thing is real-time education. And mm-hmm. the challenge of that is when you have crews that work 12-hour shifts, you know, potentially three shifts a week, um, every time they come in, they'll likely have new education that, um, supersedes the education we was just for about a few days prior because of the what we learned in real time and um, from the CDC guidelines and from our partnering facilities. You know, we're lucky that we have a 10 health system consortium sure. with, over, yeah. with nearly 70 hospitals now to learn from. Um, with uh, that's the one part is education. Uh, second part would be screened in the comm center early on uh, when we re- take in a, a transport request. Oh. Um, you know, we can ask questions up front um, if this, if they have known or suspected COVID-19. Um, have they been exposed to someone known or suspected COVID-19? 
the recent travel question has tapered off a little bit, but it was it really important to us in Minnesota, given that it fell right around spring break time, where a lot of um, individuals or their families had recently traveled to, um, whether it be on cruise ships um, or areas that were impacted, such as Europe. Um, and then, of course, the presence of a fever um, or those um, with unknown exposure to COVID, it always is a good reminder um, that it could be potential. Yes. However, as data surfaces, um, the presence of a fever is not solely indicative of COVID-19 either. Right. So it is challenging um, with the screening process, but it's something that we continue to try to do um, just so our, our clinicians are, are acutely aware of it going in, into that, um, that referring agency. Right. Have you, um, ha- have you had trouble with the getting supplies, extra supplies? Um, you know, we, we have um, a pretty decent stock all the time because similarly with patients that we, that we transport all the time, there's always those types of airborne or droplet precautions that you must take uh, for highly infectious patients. Yes. Uh, I think the Ebola virus um, really um, kind of heightens our sense of awareness around infectious patients and um, this is a little bit different as you know Ebola's were a hard no for us transporting them by rotor ring in the past and we had more definitive criteria but with COVID-19 patients um, you know we need to make sure we have gloves and uh, N95 masks and gowns as well as face shields and mm-hmm. um, with the shortage of N95 masks and um, we've been uh, following CDC guidelines with um, wearing the N95 mask up to five times. Um, we haven't had to do that um, too much as of as to date. Um, but the CDC has kind of um, weaned off a little bit for other patients that could potentially be been exposed to COVID-19 is to have a surgical mask uh, in place. Uh, just a routine surgical mask, a non, not an N95 mask. Mm-hmm. And with our patients that are highly sus- suspect, or actual COVID-19, you know, if they have a CT scan and it looks like they have lungs that that look to be the criteria of COVID-19, we would make sure that these patients are intubated with full filtration in place um, with, you know, it's basically an N95 particulate filter in place on the ventilator to protect the ventilator, uh, to protect the ambient air from uh, contamination from the patient itself. And, and, you know, protecting the ventilator from um, infecting others, you know, future. So we do protect both inspiratory and expiratory um, facets of the ventilator as well. Yeah. Um, one of the unique things we had, one of our clinicians who's very astute um, and, you know, is always combing through the literature and had inquired about the n CO2 sensor. Um, yeah. learn that it off gases 20 cc's per minute um, into the ambient air through uh, the you know the the monitor that we use. And upon um, inquiry to the manufacturer, they disclosed to us that the disposable device that we utilize has a 0.2 micron filter, um, which we found quite interesting, uh, given that the N95 mask has a 0.3 micron filter. Huh. So. Um, something that kind of raised um, concern um, rapidly became, um, you know, a point of not, uh, no contention. 
Yeah, well, that's uh, that's very interesting and good for other programs to hear that too. It's uh, it's it's really interesting, you know, talking to programs and seeing what they're doing. Are you doing um, anything extra, Colby, in uh, the decontamination process um, on the on the aircraft? For After sure, that, I think that yeah. I wouldn't say necessarily much different. I would say more thorough and more. Um, uh, consistent and routine mm-hmm. with uh, the disinfection. You know, we do pay attention to the the types of disinfectants that we're utilizing to ensure that they do indeed cover COVID nineteen now, which um, was never a concern in the past, or it was never not a common household name as it is now. Yes. And as they become more difficult to obtain, you know, we talk about masks and gowns and face shields being. Uh, in shortage or not in abundance and readily available from our vendors, we, we are finding the same with the disinfectants. Um, so we re- recently had to make a change. It was not a, a huge change. It was more of a, a, a brand name change that has the same level of, of spectrum of coverage. Um, but it is a new, uh, something worth exploring routinely now. Um, so we do make we did add a kit um, that allows access to extra PPE that we have on the aircraft that's available for routine cleaning um, to begin at the receiving facility. Hmm. So as the patient gets delivered and they disinfect the equipment and uh, the litter that went in with the patient, um, our pilots are actually beginning cleaning the aircraft, um, the patient clearly, because one of the main um, the main keys to disinfecting after a drop of precaution type patient is to have the doors open for a period of time after uh, landing, after arrival. So oh. having that, that period of time open um, along with the needed wet contact time with the disinfectants that are utilized, you know, the greater the duration of um, wet um, contact time with the surfaces, the greater the disinfection. Interesting. Um, of which, the surface. Which so, then helps you get back uh, in service sooner too, right? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And what we found is what our missing key was that we had to fix was we had to make an abundance, uh, you know, a tub of the, the disinfectant wipes available as well as the appropriate PPE. So um, surgical masks and um, gloves and a, and a gown for yeah. that to take place. And yeah. we have enough for, you know, all three, all three occupants to be basically accomplish that um, prior to returning to service or returning yeah. back to the base. Well, that's, that's really good information. Yeah. Excellent. Um, uh, so are, are you doing anything with triage or some of these patients maybe going by ground rather than air or has that made any difference in your uh, volume, you know, potential volume? Yeah, we really haven't seen that impact. Um, our service yet. I think, you know, throughout Minnesota, we're, we're blessed with some really, um, strong, uh, EMS systems Mm -hmm. and, uh, decision-making amongst the, the refer, the rural referral facilities and, and the Metro receiving facilities. And a lot of that decision-making is, is, is made prior to even engaging Lifelink 3 for air medical transport. And, um, we do know that, you know, our rotor wing, we do have a, the ability to control a little bit more airflow ventilation um, than we would in the fixed wing environment. Mm-hmm. So okay. a lot of our 
we're trying to control the environment of the patient, basically, by ensuring a closed circuit, if you will, um, by having that patient um, that is known or suspected um, intubated and, and uh, adequately filtered. Yeah. I know that some fixed wing programs um, that routinely carry airborne or droplet precaution patients use a product um, like the isopod, um, and that's a negative pressure cocoon, um, very similar to what we saw back in the news during the Ebola um, the Ebola outbreak. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these, those are, um, they're not easy to obtain on short notice, and it's something that you need to have, um, you know, the staff trained and competent on. And it's not something that we've really explored uh, at Lifeline 3 yet, but obviously it's something that I think everyone's going to be looking at new ways to safely transport these patients you know, or anyone in the universal type setting. Yeah, and, and especially when you don't know if they have it or not. Um, Correct. You know, because it could be. Um, I've talked to some programs on their volumes. They, you know, of course, weather is always a factor for our medical. But some, you know, because of uh, some states have really shut down much earlier as far as you know having people stay at home. They're seeing maybe less um, trauma cases, for instance. Um, and so, you know, that, that could be affecting volume at, at, at some point. Um, yeah, the, our teams have talked about that, and yeah. uh, we haven't seen a significant impact other than weather. Um, yeah. But we do anticipate they will indeed decline a bit um, because of folks being, you know, staying at home um, and yeah. non-essential workplaces, you know, for workplace injuries and such, um, or being exposed to any type of other hazards is dramatically reduced. Yep. Are you seeing um, differences in the hospitals that you're picking up or going into as far as the precautions that they're taking, and especially one instance where they're actually testing EMS personnel as they come in the door? Have you seen any changes that way with any um, of the referring or receiving hospitals? No, we haven't seen it yet. I did hear about... um, other parts of the country that are, you know, where hospitals are indeed screening not only the patients, but the EMS workers that arrive. Yep. Um, something that we've done, knowing that we have two of our bases are located at receiving hospitals, and um, where routinely we, our crews are there to welcome and greet um, other incoming aircraft, whether they're ours or our neighboring programs. Um, you know, we're always there with a smile on our face and eager and uh, willing to help assist with the unloading process and escort them down to the emergency department or to the ICU. Yes. And, you know, our pilots may also welcome them and have a cup of coffee with their pilot. Our crews may have coffee or water together, too, afterwards. And um, that's something that we're discouraging now, which is hard because, Keeping that you know, distance. there's always people helping people. Yep. And we're trying to avoid that um, cross-contamination between bases and uh, potential, um, you know, in, not infected, but those that have just been contaminated by um, a patient of unknown origin and um, interacting and, and not social distancing ourselves while in the workplace. Yep. And just restricting visitors, too, has been yeah. difficult overall, and um, people have been working long hours and during this time of unknown um you know how long this is going to go on or if their loved one's going to get infected um, or bring it home that we can't have their loved ones come to the base to visit and um 
So that's challenging. Yeah, the difficult thing is, you know, people are going home and they have families and who knows where their spouse or families have been too. And, uh, you know, potentially picking it up somewhere outside of work um, and, and knowing that. Um, the um, uh, I wanted to ask uh, on your uh, staff that's not clinical or the communications or aviation staff, uh, are, has LifeLink had some people start working from home? Is that available? Yes. Um, effective um, today, uh, all non-essential administration, which is basically non-clinical providers and uh, those that aren't employed in the comm center, have begun to work remotely. Yep. Um, Seen that and, everywhere. Yeah, many individuals um, that began as early as last week. Yep. And it's something that we've always been preparing for, um, that, you know, we have the tools and resources available to do our jobs now in the remote environment with Office 365 and yep. collaboration software such as Microsoft Teams and Zoom. And, you know, now we're learning that, you know, everyone's starting for bandwidth more than we were prior to <laughs> yes. the world working from home. Yeah. And so we anticipate that will only get worse with the homeschooling going on and um, the remote workplace. Yeah, so, some so, of the providers um, have actually upped the bandwidth, you know, uh, uh, knowing knowing that. But uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Dan. Yeah, we've so far, um, we know we've had great luck um, with meetings with, you know, up to 20 people on them at a time. Wow. Um, with, without any issue, including some video. Um, most notably, I think, is those with... Um, with satellite internet, um, oh, yes. being able to participate in video conferencing without any issues. So, yeah. um, you know, it has been working well. It's just a, it's a new feel for a lot of folks, um, and it's it's serving us well right now. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that, talking to other programs, you know, the IT professionals become essential too, and I think not just for healthcare and aeromedical, but really for any business, um, the ability to to, to do that type of conferencing and, uh, you know, keep things uh, moving uh, and having the business uh, keep running. So it's, it's, uh, it's essential. I think one of the things, too, is um, security type, type things, too, that you have to watch because you've got people coming in on all different types of carriers and so forth. So um, Yeah, one other um, thing with, the, you know, working remotely, is that our regional clinical managers, regional operations managers who would frequent the bases, uh, we thought it was important uh, for them to maintain a relationship, obviously, with all their, all their clinical staff. Yes. And um, so we've encouraged them to uh, use remote conferencing um, during each shift to check in with the crew and be able to see their faces and hear their voices. So they've been doing that uh, routinely. Um, some began late last week, and others are starting this week, uh, you know, uh, migrating away from a phone call to the video conferencing software. Yes. So, um, Colby, what is your, you know, greatest concern with COVID-19? I think my greatest concern, obviously, is the access, to, the continuous access to supplies. Um, mm -hmm. And... You know, the unknown, the lack of immediate or timely testing. I know that there are multiple um, uh, lab testing supply uh, folks that have 
um, that are working on more more timely point of care style testing. But what all of them have, as we learned, um, is that it all requires pipetting right now, which is the manual transfer of liquid between multiple vials. So it does require a lab type setting. So you know we can more accurately test for patient care type um, indices such as blood gases or um, a glucose more than we ever will probably see with a, a disease process such as COVID-19. But that would that would that would immediately help with any uh, potential scares, um, potential staffing outages, or plan for if we knew that someone had tested positive or a patient was tested positive. Right. Um, along with that is you know the non-specificity of the symptoms uh, or any differential criteria. Um, you know, early on with COVID-19, as I mentioned, um, if we knew that someone was just returning from a cruise or uh, Europe, we could we could accurately and uh, adequately quarantine them for 14 days and feel good about ourselves and feel like we did something positive. But, you know, that is not valid any longer uh, as this is spread. Um, and then as time goes on, obviously, um, you know, we worry about the impact on healthcare providers, uh, the chances of them becoming ill, yes. um, either at home or on the job. And, yes. um, you know, the family comes ill and we continue to spread this. And then the financial impact on the healthcare system, you know, and we're seeing um, parents be expected to be not only the breadwinners for the family, but also have to be the, the homeschool parent. And uh, not everyone signed up for that. Um, but yeah. I think that everyone's gaining more and more respect and understanding of what teachers are, <laughs> yes. are um, subject to on a daily basis. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the economy as a whole, um, you know, the, is the world going to be forever changed like it was from 9-11 as a result of this? Yeah, um, it's... You know, uh, went into a store the other day, um, and it was a, it was the Guitar Center, and they would only let two people in. This is in New York. And they would only let wow. two people in at a time into the whole store um, because they had to disinfect anything that was touched by anyone that came in the store. Wow. Um, and... So there was a line outside, and it was one in, one out. And um, it got me thinking about uh, pre-9-11 when you could walk, you know, a family member to the gate, uh, wait for them to be on the plane yes, yes. Um, without going to security. Yeah, that's so a good analogy. Yeah. we'll see major changes in the future. Yes, that's that's very true. Have, have you, um, I know LifeLink's always had a really good EAP and uh, support program as uh, have you looked at that? Is there um, additional things you've had to add to that or anything for other programs to learn? Yeah, I think that, you know, the EAP is always a resource. Uh, more importantly, we have um, an individual by the name of Jonathan Bunt, who's our, our um, internal expert um, psychologist who uh, we have um, sort of on staff to help um, prepare individuals to navigate something that's outside of normal for their their life and basically how to find um, a sense of peace or um, some common normalcy during a time of a period of, of uncertainty yeah. and um, our human resources department has been working with him to put together some messaging uh, via YouTube ch uh, videos to make Excellent. available to the staff Excellent. yeah and um, 
And, you know, not only as it pertains to um, COVID-19, but it could be, it could pertain to anyone with a new diagnosis. If you, if you think about how something like a cancer diagnosis changes someone's life, um, this is similar, but on steroids, because you don't know that you're also could be passing it on or just walking by it in the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, I've read a lot about that. This, the, you know, the psychological effect of all this on everybody, you know, but uh, yeah. I think especially the caregivers and reading a lot of the stuff that, you know, coming out of Italy, it's, it's, um, it's really, um, you know, the number of, patients that were lost, but the number of healthcare workers and physicians that, you know, uh, have been lost, um, in, in fighting this. So it's, uh, it's very, very, very stressful for people, for everyone. Yeah. I'm one of those, <laughs> I'm one of those people that really, um, wasn't, um, a hundred percent on board with, um, being prepared for this, you know, and taking it seriously as we should have, I, you know, it was, because we watched it from abroad and yep, yep. We, we tend to have a lot of confidence in our U.S. healthcare system, but no matter what level of preparedness we had for this, you know, the social distancing obviously is the greatest cure for it, um, which is tough. Um, me being the extrovert that I am, uh, it's not an easy thing to do for everyone yep. to stay at home and you realize how inconvenienced we are um, just to be told to stay home. And no one's taken away our internet, our, our, our phones, or our TVs, um, yet, you know, we're still quite dependent on the entertainment that people need to gather for, like the sporting events that we watch on TV yes. and take for granted. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and it's become so, um, you see how dependent we are on others for our own happiness or technology. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, especially just in, you know, uh, you know, the, the handshake might be gone forever. Um, you know, I, I was always one that, uh, during flu season always was, you know, trying to, okay, it's just bump elbows, but now I'm even like, uh, like, wait a minute, I just sneezed into my elbow area. I don't think that's a good idea either. And plus you're not keeping social distance. So, um, it, it could change, uh, some of those things too, because there's other countries that don't do that, uh, that much or some that even do more, but, uh, but you're right. So, any other? Will it forever uh, change hand washing practices? Yes. Too, oh gosh. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't. I've been in the airport several times since this, and I sure have um, been very mindful about when I wash my hands, even shutting the. You know, a lot of them are no contact um, faucets and such. But um, you know, in the meantime, you watch many people leave the bathroom without washing hands, and yep. then somehow you got to get that door open and it, it yeah. becomes yes. really a point of focus for me, which is kind of an, un, you know, it's just something you've never even thought about in the past. And right. It makes us all much more vigilant. And, yeah. um, I laugh about this almost that, you know, with the universal precautions, we have become hyper vigilant about something that we've always been taught very early is the universal precautions. And we've kind of become very lax in that department as a whole, um, and limited ourselves to just, um, contact precautions with gloves, and and right now we're you know it's amazing that we spent so much time on the importance of hand washing when we've known it all along. Yeah, I've had others say the same thing. It it's really gets down to doing what we've been taught all along, and uh, how important that is. Just a couple other things. Yeah. Any other comments or advice uh, for other programs on this? Or no, I think 
I think that's basically it. And I think that one thing that we learn more from anything is that when in question, do not hesitate to contact the manufacturers. I think that it's uh. easy for us to try to become, you know, try to um, solve a question that, um, you know, find an answer to um, a question we feel we should have the answer to when it's right there. Um, you know, the reason the FDA approval process takes so long is because um, these vendors, these manufacturers of this equipment, they have to be able to answer questions um, such as, you know, the ones that we have around COVID-19 or infectious patients and whether it be the, disin the proper disinfection protocol, um, you know, or the filtering of a particular device. Um, recommendations from, uh, in our case, Hamilton ventilators, you know, what they recommended for, uh, you know, applying the appropriate filters and where on the vent or where in the vent circuit to um, place them. And um, so it's kind of best practice, I believe now, is to, is to reach out to the vendors themselves, the manufacturers. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, it seems like everybody I talked to have had, had, had a couple little zingers, and I think that's a, that's a good one for other people to... To look at. Um, finally, I, I know you're a, a regent with MTLI, and I know um, the decision's been made to uh, postpone. Is that correct? Um, yeah, it's been uh, the decision's been made to postpone, and I know that uh, Ames and and the training center at Ogle Bay um, are working very hard to uh, get that rescheduled. Yeah, um, they they were being very creative with ways to make that happen yet this year. So I know that um, by April 1st, we've promised uh, the world to have an answer to them about when that date or dates uh, could potentially be um, rescheduled. So we should have something uh, by the 1st um, to have that rescheduled. Yeah. yeah that's Obviously, that's something that a lot of people look forward to. And, you know, it's, there's been a lot of information shared on the CMTE listserv, which is, you know, anyone that completes year two has access to and that is one of the invaluable sort resources that has been out there um, for leaders that face challenges associated with, um, you know, issues such as COVID-19 and how to mitigate and protect our staff and our, our equipment. You know, it's, it's going to be difficult. I mean, I, you know, you just don't know how long uh, it seems like Italy now, the, the number, the increase in cases has gone down. Um, still getting new cases, but not at the same rate. You know, when is that time period? And it seems, too, you know, the flattening out of the curve is really just to not overwhelm the health system. That still doesn't mean people are going to get infected uh, with it. So where do you, you know, how, how far out uh, do people have to go? Because I've, I've been on some other things that, you know, They've just said we're going to have to do it next year, you know, uh, and have to go. Yeah, and, ways. and many, yeah. many uh, associations have. Um, yes, you know, AMPA um, has the CCTMC conference um, that's been canceled all altogether. Uh, NTI, the National Teaching Institution, which is um, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, mm -hmm. um, that has been canceled. Um, in many other associations, and um, you know, obviously that that impacts those organizations financially and limits their ability limits their ability to provide meaningful education to healthcare providers, and that's a concern of mine um, as yes. well. Many of them have made um, many of their resources available at no cost, or drastically reduced um, 
their prices, um, For, you know, to make their online, online content yeah. available. Sure. And, um, and I know that, um, that many people will struggle not only with the ability to attend or, or sit down. I mean, they're just not going to have the time. Um, many more hours are going to be put in by healthcare providers as um, providers become ill. And they're going to need to take a little bit of a mental break from, from their jobs as this consumes them uh, in addition to the demands of their family life. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, homeschooling their children that are not in school right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a, so, well, Cole, thank you so much for uh, taking the, the time today. I really uh, appreciate it. I know you're, you're all very busy, but uh, I th- thought, you know, getting this, the word out uh, uh, to some other programs to, you know, learn from each other and how we can all deal with this together. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Looking forward to it. Last but not least by any means uh, is Tom Judge, who is the CEO of LifeLight of Maine. Welcome, Tom, and thanks so much for taking time in the podcast. I know that uh, all the programs are under a lot of stress, and I'm sure you are too, so I I appreciate you uh, taking a few minutes with us today. Well, great great to be with you, Ed, and thanks for putting this program out there. Sure. Well, um... Tom, have have you transported? Has Lifeline of Maine transported any known COVID nine cases as yet? And um... I think that what we're what we're seeing is presumed transport. So mm-hmm. it, that what we would end up with is someone in severe respiratory failure uh, at a hospital who's been tested but not uh, had the results of the test. So yeah, yeah. we would presume treat them as if they were positive. And then, you know, hopefully down the road, find sometimes them yes and sometimes no. Are, are you finding out the ones that even might not even have been symptomatic but are uh, being transported for something else or later found to, to have uh, COVID-19? We haven't seen directly patients transported for some other diagnosis that turn, later turned positive. We've certainly heard that from colleagues in New England. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, it, it's it's a concern, and of course you don't know where in the transmission chain that happened. So it may have been post the transport that they had somehow right. got an exposure. It's it's just very difficult to tell. Sure. And another concern, obviously, is our staffs. Um, and uh, have you had uh, any staff exposed either? You know through transporting or even at home or you know somewhere else we we believe at this point we may have one staff member exposed not certain that it happened in the course of work but obviously our primary concern right now is actually the safety and health of our employees and their families because if our employees can't work then the whole population you know with the healthcare workers become unhealthy, then the whole population's at risk. So we're, we're, you know, really focused on what we can do in an already stressful time to better support our our people. Yeah, that's it's a big concern. I mean, some of the stuff coming out of Italy has been very concerning with the number of healthcare workers, physicians, and so forth that have, uh, have died, you know, uh, as a result. And uh, what, that, what that does, so, you know, keeping people safe, that's a 
big job. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you know, our people are rightfully concerned. They 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 hear the news. They, you know, you know, watch things, and they're like, you know, are we going to have enough personal protective equipment? And we're doing everything we can, um, you know, in the background. Uh, you know, multiple sources. Mm-hmm. We're doing main EMS, the main CDC. You know, to get stuff from the stockpile. You know, we were. Uh, you know, in contact with our, our Senate delegation, you know, health care staffers over the weekend were in, in contact with them every day, trying to make sure that the federal response, which at this point has not been as forceful or as rapid and focused as it needs to be, that that, that, that becomes much more so. So we're working on every front to assure that we can keep our, our, our workforce safe. Yeah. So uh, are there any uh, additional precautions that you're taking with staff? Is there extra training? Is there extra equipment or supplies that you're using? So there's, there's certainly, um, you know, renewed training, um, and, and certainly with our aviation staff, renewed training. Um, we're going through all of our SOPs, uh, revising them, sometimes revising them, you know, a couple times a week as science and guidance gets better. Mm-hmm. We've certainly revised all the way that we manage airway. Um, and then, you know, SOPs for how we, how we uh, interact with vehicles. Um, we're in our choice because we, we have ground resource partners. Um, we're by default moving any severe respiratory patient by, by ground instead of air, but we cover numerous islands and remote communities so we have to have the air uh you know available uh so we're spending a lot of time seeing it you're really thinking about you know kits and how do you do this and how do you prevent all the other equipment in the ambulance or aircraft become contaminated and how do you you know make sure the air ducts and the exhaust systems and environment systems in the vehicles don't become contaminated we locked down our facilities, you know, stopped all external education, um, stopping, you know, people coming in, you know, we're working as diligently as we can to, to, you know, protect, protect everything. And, 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 you know, not just our own workforce, but our, all our colleagues in EMS and the hospitals as well. Yeah. I, there's a couple of questions I had around that. um, Has your decontamination process changed at all or have you found new new things or are you having trouble getting supplies um we're not having trouble getting supplies we we you know you know everyone's short of hand sanitizer these things like that but yeah. the disinfecting the, the decontamination disinfecting process um it's it's i don't think it's changed it's become much more rigorous we're certainly looking at at, at are there other technologies that we can employ if you you know you follow china they you know, built systems where they could, you know, ultraviolet the entire bus or train car at a yes. time. Yes. We're certainly not there. Um, we've worked with our aviation, you know, OEMs and our aviation partners on on uh, possible, uh, you know, other technology to to uh, more rapidly and thoroughly decontaminate aircraft. At this point, we don't have it. I know the the OEMs, you know, and we've heard the same from pretty much all the OEMs. They're they're as rapidly as they can having their engineering people look at this because obviously for the OEMs, this is a worldwide crisis. 
And so any way to, to protect the environment that we operate in, you know, whether that's an aircraft and ambulances is pretty, is critical. So people are working on this. They're not there yet. We've, we've looked at a couple things and then as you, as you dig deeper, it's like, well, we don't know what's going to do to the avionics and the aircraft. Well, oh yeah, and that's that doesn't become an answer, you know. Yeah. We don't know what it, what it's going to do to the to the ceilings on ceilings on the windows, you know. So there's until we until we know we we're you know we have to be limited to the uh, things that are improved, and then but we you know we more rigorously we air things out. We we you know. Um, there's a stop action. So sometimes it's, you can't just turn around to do the next transport until you're really certain that, that we've thoroughly disinfected and decontaminated to the very best of ability. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the UV thing is, it's interesting. And some others had mentioned that, um, uh, are you, are you seeing that at all? And have you seen anybody doing that in ground transport? We've not seen it, and well, we, we, uh, GMR is, has worked with some new technologies, and and they're using those on both ground and air, you know. But it's it's beyond the recommendations of the OEM. So you know, but they felt it's important. So we're hmm. you know we're working closely. You know, there are you know Seven Bars are aviation partner, and working you know closely with them to to make certain that that everything that we do is aligned uh, together. So, but at this point, the UV stuff is just not, from our standpoint, it's just not there. And, and if we had something that had an unknown effect on the avionics of an aircraft, that yeah. would be beyond yeah. what we could consider safe. Exactly. On, on other types of supplies, are you having any issues with getting supplies, masks, um, or, um, as with everybody, we're we're yep. we're short of masks. I think I we have a you know a daily inventory at, at the end of after afternoon that all our managers are on, and you know we're looking at how everything went during the day. You know, and we're you know we're a rural state. We're kind of far off from from the places, but we're seeing these patients. And I think I counted it up today that you know that we probably have you know, 10, 12 days, um, of, of supplies that we have in our hands, but, you know, our hospital partners have supplies and, you know, we'll be restocking with them and we're expecting to, to get some, uh, deliveries from the main CDC, apparently got a delivery today from, from the federal stockpile. So, yep. but of course, every hospital, every doctor's office, you know, every clinic, um, every public safety agency, every EMS agency, um, every public health, you know, office. I mean, we're all, you know, need the same supplies. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really critical from what I've been reading in many places. Have, have you seen Tom, you, you say you're moving some more into ground. Have you seen any effect on volume yet with, um, your helicopter fixed wing? Um, other than that, we, you know, would have, we, we would have flown some patients that, that we didn't fly, um, on, under, you know, an abundance of caution. Mm -hmm. Um, so that would certainly affect some volume, but, but we're busy, um, all of the other 
illnesses. We're not seeing maybe quite as much trauma, but we're, we're certainly seeing other things. So, you know, the heart attacks, the strokes, the, you know, the, the GI bleeds, I mean, all these things, you know, keep going. So yeah. we're, 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 we're very busy, you know, we're busy. And then this is just an added layer of busyness and, and stress. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's been the general consensus of the folks I've talked to. Um, you know, you might see more as this continues, you know, with warmer weather, people getting out, maybe not going out as much and not driving as much too. Um, uh, let's see, are your non-clinical, non-communication, non-aviation staff, uh, you have options for them working from home now? Yeah, we'd we'd actually moved them to the home, you know, before the healthcare systems, you know, you recommended that, and before the state had recommended it, we had kind of preemptively done that. So, you know, we're we're giving them all, you know, we they already already had the tools, and so we're we're giving them the options, and we're obviously doing a lot more work on on, uh, you know, video conferencing and things, and and you know, the, one of the other challenges, it's a very big challenge, and we're working with our partners in the Maine Ambulance Association and, and the state CDC, the Maine CDC and the state is, is how do we, if all the, all the schools are closed, so how do we make certain that, um, that we have adequate childcare yeah. for our workforce? Yes. And that's, you know, so we're, we're spending, uh, you know, a fair bit of effort, uh, trying to find resources for our workforce, um, and, uh, you know, safe places for their children and, so that that's a whole other, you know. There's there's sort of many layers to the, to the response that is some in the foreground, some in the background, and every one of them is important. Yeah, the uh, I th- you know especially uh, younger folks that have kids, and all of a sudden they're faced with homeschooling. If you've got both partners working, that uh, makes that even even harder. So. Very very challenging. Yeah yeah. Um, are you have any, uh, being a rural state, um, you have as IT, uh, I think they're sort of, you know, from what I'm reading in just about every industry, not just healthcare and, uh, EMS of, uh, the importance of IT to make all this stuff work for ability of people to be at home and have video conferences or conferences. Are you seeing that a challenge in a rural area? In- uh, touch wood so far. No, uh, oh, it's actually... I think in some ways surprising um, that it's that it's working working so well. Yeah. Um, uh, so you know we're using multiple technologies, but uh, you know, and every once in a while, you know, we we were on a just a phone conference call today, and we it, we just could not establish good connections. It was a it's one of our standard you know conference lines, and this morning it worked great, and this afternoon, and that may be because of of a volume, you know, yep. a, across the country, um, you know, we switched to a different, you know, we have sort of multiple systems and we switched to a different system and that, and that was able to, we were able to conduct the meeting, but so we've seen a few little glitches, but, but, uh, touch wood so far. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, I think others are experiencing that too. It's, uh, but, uh, it becomes even more critical, uh, with this, um, and especially then security too, because you read stuff about, you know, well, people are on different networks and you're not behind the same firewalls, you know, how, how to, to keep that up. So, um, that's, that is a very, the security is a very big concern. Yeah. Yeah. 
attention. Um, are you seeing the hospitals that you're, you know, either picking up from or going to uh, taking extra precautions? I've heard in some places they're actually testing EMS personnel before they even come into the hospital. Are you seeing any of that or seeing? Oh, nothing? oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, virtually all our hospitals are on lockdown yep. um, and uh, restricting visitors and um, checking people and checking everyone coming through the door as we're doing at work. So, you know, everyone is coming in, uh, taking their temperature, uh, doing, you know, a symptoms check, you know, a health assessment at, at the start of every shift um, so that, you know, we're monitoring uh, the workforce. Um, but, yes, the hospitals are monitoring everyone that's coming in the door. Yep. And we're trying to encourage people to, to you know, that the – People get sick, they call 911, or they, you know, they're not certain they call, you know, that they're really sick or not, and they call 911. And we're trying to really work with, with EMS and the hospitals and the main CDC. I mean, it's been a, a the public health people, it's been a, a big push to try and get people not to just not go to the hospital, um, you know, unless, unless we, we really need, you know, to be at the hospital. So, yes. but that means our EMS agencies are having to help monitor people at home. Um, our 911 senators are, are, you know, the workload of the 911 centers is, is up substantially. So it, it's been a, it's been a big push. Um, you know, the main EMS and the main CDC are, you know, really, you know, working with, you know, the, the all of HHS in the state and the governor, that part has been in Maine has been, um, been really a godsend that, you know, people are working together. Um, they're working hard. They're communicating well. It's, it's not perfect. Um, but, but, you know, so far it's, it's a, it's a full press effort and, and, uh, you know, the communication pieces are good. Have you seen the use of uh, telemedicine increase in the state? So there is, uh, so the use, we wouldn't see it a lot directly, but there's no question that the, that, that telemedicine is, is one of the pieces of this puzzle. And I think home health and hospice agencies are trying to, to work on that and how, how best they can support um, their patients at home. Um, you know, obviously our physician offices are, are doing more of that, but I mean, it's not, it's not really the lights lighting piece of this that that we would see, but it is it is uh, no question, especially in a rural area where we've got great distances. Um, you know, it's not just simple to, for a lot of people to go to a doctor's office. Um, so that's going to become increasing, and you know, it, it's going to be a learning curve for everybody. Right. Have you um, seen any? I know it's still early financial impact. In other words, uh, extra expense or maybe some reduced revenue, or is it too, still too early to tell? Oh no, it's, it's no, <laughs> it's immediate, right? Because okay. you have you have uh, a very big increase of supply cost. Okay. Um, so we're using lots more PPE, and um, that's you know not it's quantifiable, but it's not. You know, we don't have a way to to actually get get immediately reimbursed for it. Um, obviously, there's you know training costs. Um, there's some facility costs that are up, and you know if we transfer a patient who was going to be flown to now ground, um, there that 
um, that it becomes a very big revenue hit. Yep. Um, yep. So. So uh, are you uh, are you doing some extra things for staff? Obviously, um, you know, keeping them. You know, one of the big stresses I think for everybody is just the mental uh, stress of all this. Of um, you know, for for everyone. You know, am I going to catch this or how do I keep people safe? But especially for our you know frontline healthcare workers or anything you're doing with EAP or extra or do you have those things in place already? Please. We have those in place, and, and we're certainly we're certainly trying to make certain that people know uh, they're available. Our, all our our you know managers at every front are are really um, paying attention to the workforce, and then you know the senior managers that you know are on 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 at every shift briefing. So we every shift briefing has video conference between all of our base sites, and there's you know a, a a very senior executive leadership on yeah. every one of those twice a day, um, so that they, they, you know, that we can answer questions, we can um, be available, and you know, and and you know, and, and you know, people come up with like, you know, one of the guys he, he said, you know, like, are you guys contemplating homemade masks? You know, we have some science about how homemade masks don't work, and it's like, no, we're not contemplating homemade masks. You know, but yes, let's let's share. You know, there was a study done in Vietnam, and you know, and like you know, we're so. I think those are the kinds of things. I think this is. Uh, we need to prepare everybody that this isn't going to be a sprint. This is going to be a marathon, and, yes. and we're going to have to pace um, everybody. So we're also trying to take any of the other good stuff that we do. You know, whether that's um, you know extra work on, on, on quality projects, extra work on safety projects, extra work, and, and, and we're trying to really calibrate that so that if there's something that we absolutely need to do, we're doing it, um, and if there's things that we don't absolutely need to do, we're taking them off, you know, off the, the, uh, the workload yep. of our staff so that we can do everything we can to, to, um, to get them through this. Yeah. So, Tom, what is your greatest concern with COVID nineteen? I think my my greatest concern um, is that that we could see a a breakdown in society, and mm. and so far we're we're not, and we're we're seeing some you know good things about how people help each other and, and organize. I know my little community that I live in, you know, the EMS and the town are working hard. We have a lot of elderly living at home and we, you know, we need to, need them to stay at home and we need to, but then we need to support them uh, in their ability to stay at home. So uh, the socialization, you know, and I, I shared with, with our people and, you know, we're a charity and we, we share with our donors that, you know, the big buzzword is social distance. Well, that's actually not what we want or mean. What we need, what we mean by that is, six feet of physical separation. Um, we don't want social distance. We want actually to do everything we can to, to connect to more connection. Socially. Yes. yes. And, and so it's, it's those little language things become important. That's a good um, point. But that's, that's our, our, our real worry is obviously, you know, our, that the healthcare system could be, 
could be overrun and, and we're not going to have the resources to take care of people the way we want to and believe people need to be taken care of. So that's, that's you know, managing that part is, is, is hard. But I think the, the bigger part is, you know, can we get society to take this seriously? Um, and we, we still have some challenges with that. And, and then what can we do to, um, to really improve social connectivity in a time when we're increasing physical separation and, you know, isolation at home? And just think of all these words, you know, quarantine, isolation, you know, self-isolation. All of those things, you know, they, they mean something. The words mean something to people. And what we, what we really need to make sure is that we keep people connected and, and we, we don't lose track of people. We don't let them fall through the, through the cracks. And obviously, you know, our vulnerable populations at risk, you know, that whether they're homeless, you know, they, they're economically, you know, severely disadvantaged. Those are the people we're really concerned about. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, because I know how um, connected you are with the legislative process uh, in Washington, um, any comment on what's happening with, uh, I think, uh, as of, I, I, unless something happened just in the last couple hours, I, don't, I still don't think there's any um, resolution. There's no deal yet. Yeah. <laughs> there's um, no deal yet. And it's, it's um, obviously, it's, it's troubling. I, I think these are big questions. Um, I think they, they need to be thought through quickly, and we don't have a lot of time to think through them, but, but yeah. they're, they're questions that are, are going to affect, you know, daily life for millions and millions and millions of people for the next decade. So, you know, we need to get it fast, but we need to get it right. And, you know, we hope that, that people with good intentions on both sides of the aisle can you know, take a deep breath and say, where is it that we can come together in the middle and, and, uh, yes, get this done. So we're certainly, you know, we have close working relationships with our delegation, uh, all our delegation staff, and we're working, you know, to make sure they have the information from the front lines of, you know, uh, how important it is to, to get this sorted out, and and you know after that we just hope and pray that that the, the you know the, the national leadership, which has been fragmented and and divisive, you know for so long, can can figure out you know this is this is you know the same level of mobilization that we needed in the Second World War. Yeah, and we haven't done that in you know three generations and. Um, we need to have another greatest generation. Yeah, that's that's a. We'll see if they can rise to the challenge. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, just in you know some organizations changing what they're making, just like they did in World War II. We had auto plants making airplanes and so forth. It's the same kind of mobilization that we need. So, well, Tom, any other comments on this? No, I, I think that the. the the big thing that, that we, and we're certainly trying to do with our staff, is share the science. The science is yes. evolving sometimes yes. daily, and it's, and you know, so that makes it hard on people because it's like, but, you know, eight hours ago you said something a little bit different. Yes. And so we're, we're, we're trying to focus people in the science, and we need, you know, sometimes as scary as it is to, to focus the public on the science, 
um, you know, because we, we've got to get this right. Um, this will have, you know, we, we already know the consequences and the consequences could get worse if we don't, if we don't, uh, if we don't really come together and get this right and support, e- support each other through all of this. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the reasons for this is to get, because I think everybody I've talked to has had some one or two good points that, uh, you know, we can, everybody can use. And I think it is a time of uh, sharing information and, and getting through this together. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and so when we, you know, we, we put on our new airway management things and, you know, we shared them with, with ACT and, and, you know, and because people have been asking in our SOPs mm-hmm. and it's not that, it's not that we have it all right. We, we have some good, you know, what I think are good ideas. We've, you know, got some, some, you know, you know, really good thinking doctors behind them, you know, doctors with a lot of experience in this uh, type of, you know, a, you know, a little bit different, but, you know, whether it was Ebola or not. So we, we've, we have a lot of um, resources and we're sharing those because I think you're exactly right and why this, 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 this uh, program is so important is that we're all going to have to learn this together. Yes. And everybody, everybody as they encounter patients, as they do things, as they find something that works, we want to share that so we can replicate it uh, as fast as we can so that, that uh, you know, because in the end that will make it easier for all of us. Yep. And doing the right thing for patients. So. And doing the right thing for patients, which is obviously the most important thing. Yep. But it's interesting, you know, that we, we, we shared with our people that we need to, you know, it, it's kind of a, a different, you know, a little bit different mantra. I just, you know, it may sound a little funny. It's like, it's like our first thing is you've got to protect yourself. Yes. And you've got to protect your colleagues. Yes. And you've got to protect your family. And then you're going to protect patients. And if we yeah. can't get the first three right, we can't deliver a safe system for patients. Yeah, it's a, absolutely right. I mean, it's just like safety in general. You've got to have a safe right. environment to do it. So, well, Tom, right. thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy uh, well, with all we this. We all are. And and yeah. Thanks for doing this. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it out there. Great. Wow. Sorry, this is so long, but I hope very helpful to you and your program. I want to thank again all those that took the time to be on the podcast. I very much appreciate it. Some other resources and information since I did the recording include the following. Uh, Jim Hauser mentioned after the podcast that programs be sure to explore and update their business continuity plans, especially if staff get sick or have to be quarantined. A great piece of advice. There was also an article that I posted on on the Air Medical Today social media sites on March 23rd that is titled Patient Air Transport During the COVID-19 Pandemic, published in the Air Med and Rescue magazine. The article was written by Dr. Terry Martin, who is a consultant in intensive care medicine and anesthesia from England. He details an interesting decision tree for transport of all patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. A link will be in the show notes uh, for the podcast. An Ames Town Hall was also held today on COVID-19. As soon as the link is available for the recording, I will post it on the Air Medical Today website and social media sites, another excellent place that information was shared by numerous programs. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. 
Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Air Medical Day is also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you can find that links on the website. Remember, if you would like to be a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.